0: Everybody. welcome to the node also happy spring it's like 70 degrees right now balmy temperatures it's been good watching the weather change the leaves unfurl trees in my yard budding it's really cool it's like uh i don't know it's like a time check because you see all this stuff happening and it's like this life cycle just <laughs> blooming and it just really reminds you that your daily routine isn't everything there's also there's just so much going on in all the ecosystem that's around us it's a good little reminder yeah so happy spring it's beautiful out there enjoy the weather i hope you're out i hope you're finding time to get to do the things that you really like to do and hopefully some of those things are outside all right my guest today is toby scott Toby, as you will learn or may already know, is an audio engineer who's had a very successful career. He worked with Bruce Springsteen for the majority of his career. He's worked with numerous other artists, successful artists, and that's to say that Toby himself is a very good and knowledgeable audio engineer. Um, And he's also dabbled in producing, which we get into here. I think you're going to enjoy this episode. Also, with my introduction of Toby i have a confession this is probably the biggest tragedy we've seen on the node so far of like this collective journey or maybe this is the first episode you're listening to so you're just going to dive into tragedy but here it is so i know toby because he's actually helping me record an album right now we had a common connection and we live in the same area so we got connected also for those of you who've been listening long enough, I'm going to be referring to living in Montana. I now uh, I've moved back to Missoula and I live in Montana now. So that's just a side note. There it is. Anyway, Toby and I live in the same spot. He's helping me record an album. Um, it's been really fun working with him. He knows what he's doing. He he's taught me and my bandmates a lot. Yeah, it's been it's been good to learn from him. So, this is how I know Toby and we had talked about doing a podcast, got it scheduled. I drove up to his neck of the woods and we sat down and we talked for about three hours. And if you looked at the link length of this podcast, you may be getting some foreshadowing already. We sat down and we talked for almost three hours. It was a really good conversation, as most are with Toby. And we discussed, you know, the the meaning of music, working with artists, Toby's philosophy behind his work, et cetera, et cetera. It was, it was a great podcast. Before this podcast, ironically, I decided to use a different recording mode on my recorder that I had never used before. And you may have guessed it by now. I got home after recording this podcast and found that I didn't have it saved. Yeah, I know. If, you, if you're if you driving, you can pull over right now. You might need to take a moment. All right. Yep, I lost that audio. I didn't get it in the first place, actually. But I uh, I learned how to do that recording, and that in itself was a big learning process. And here's my pro tip to all of you. It may sound obvious after I say it, but if you're going to do something live, make sure you know how to do it first. Like really make sure you know how to do it. That's all. All right. With that, I now bring you my podcast. Oh, and this podcast is great too. It's not, uh, don't stop listening now because I lost the first one. This one's really good too. So All right, I bring you Toby Scott. (sighs) We'll just start out, and I'll just admit right off the bat that we already did this. Um, And this is our second go-round. So, yeah, we recorded this one time over. Messed up the recording mode. I don't think anything could be more ironic.
1: Yeah, I'm glad I wasn't the engineer on that project.
0: Yeah. So (laughs) I guess the second go-around, maybe I'll uh, learn the lesson. Yeah. So Those
1: of you who are out there listening, this is his uh, second attempt at interviewing me.
0: Yeah. My very first uh, audio engineer on the podcast. So (laughs) welcome, Toby Scott, for the second time on the podcast.
1: All right. Nice to see you again.
0: Nice to see you, too. I'm glad you stopped by. Yeah. Um, Do you want to give us, maybe give us your take on who you are and what what you've done uh, with your life, with your career? You don't have to get too specific.
1: All right. Well, out of high school, I got involved in music, high school bands and such like that, and then started managing bands. Was successful in getting a couple of them into recording studios in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I was based in Santa Barbara, which is 100 miles north of Los Angeles. So it was an easy trip down there. And uh, we did it. The two bands that I got into studios, nothing worked out for one reason or another. They just didn't pan out. Uh, In one case, the band bailed out because they didn't feel they were ready. The other one, the uh, singer couldn't record in the studio. He froze. Uh, and then my third encounter in a regular recording studio was in Capitol Studios B uh, with a band called the Quicksilver Messenger Service. They were making their record, and uh, I thought it was quite fascinating. And I went, wow, you're, you're capable of overdubbing. And so I, after that, went out and found a two-track tape recorder that could overdub, and the second the second track per se, mm-hmm. you could have it in sync with the first track. Okay, And then, uh, I don't know, a couple of years later, I got a TEAC 3340, I think it was, the first four-track tape machine mm-hmm. that had that capability. Recorded stuff. Um, eventually uh, recorded a few songs. Took them to record companies. They didn't like my particular recording or they didn't like my particular songs. Uh-huh. So um, I decided out of heck with this stuff doing at home and uh, went through a very brief engineering course. It was one of the first courses available in Lo- in Los Angeles. <clears throat> and for those of you out there that are grueling your way through a music recording or production class at one of the colleges around the country that now provide these mine was three hours once a week for six weeks and uh, I think there were 30 kids in the class and uh, it it was okay I I did well at it and then there was an advanced course which then was uh, I think there was about seven or eight kids in that class again one three-hour session uh, for six weeks but during the course of that time, I decided I'm going to get a jump on the market. Yeah. And uh, I bogus up a resume and took it around to studios and uh, happened to stumble into one on a return visit. Mm-hmm. And this is advice to all you kids wanting to get a job in a studio. Make your resume. Um, in this day and age, you can't bogus them up because of the internet. Everybody will track you down. And that won't be good. But... Uh, Take your resume around to commercial studios and drop it off. Then two or three days later, call them back. Say, hey, can I talk to the studio studio manager? Keep doing that. Um, And eventually, uh, someone at the studio will either tell you to stop calling them. You don't have a chance of getting a job. Mm -hmm. Or stop in. We're ready to talk to you. Okay. Uh, So anyway, I went in the studio a couple days after. And uh, they needed someone. And I started that night, and, uh, geez, I think it was two weeks later, I was uh, assisting on a recording project, and the engineer didn't like my suggestions, and the producer of the project eventually booted him off, and I finished engineering the project and mixing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was probably, geez, my first month of recording. And then I continued on as an assistant but engineering you know after hours and things like that and uh finally sort of discovered that i was good at it producers and people and musicians would say oh wow you know that studio toby's good yeah and uh then i got working with bigger and bigger artists uh in 1978, I met Bruce Springsteen, uh, worked on a record, Darkness on the Edge of Town. I just assisted a mix. The, the producer or the mix engineer at the time wasn't a mixer, but uh, he was able to find his way around the board, and uh, I helped him mix the song. And then a couple of years later, Bruce came back to the studio hoping for a... Uh, a replay of the mixing of an album for him. Okay. And I ended up mixing that record. That was The River in 1980. Okay. And uh, trying to keep on top of everything. I've always been very meticulous about my work. Yeah. Keeping notes, trying to do everything in the most hi-fi fashion available. And uh, for The River, I was the... Well, one of the first people to record to a digital two-track machine mm-hmm. uh, that was a unit called a Sony 1600. It was a prototype, which then became the 1610. Later on, the 1630, which is pretty much, it was the standard of the industry for many years. Now it's just a flash drive, and you take it, deal with it that way. Yeah. But... Um, so I did this for Springsteen, and then uh, over the course of the next couple of years, uh, I think I did a Bob Dylan record, and then others. I was just, you know, keeping busy, right? working at the same studio, but now I had a degree of a reputation, mm-hmm. because the River album was Bruce's first big-selling hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had at least one number one song off, but of I think Hungry Heart was the number one. I think he had another one that was close, and in '82, I he asked me to move to New York. I did. Recorded "Born in the USA," um, which at the time that was second only to "Thriller" uh, as far as sales. Wow! Uh, I think. Well, I mean, I've got a, I've got one of those. What is it? Platinum records at home, and it's got 15 little copies on it, so it sold 15 million. Okay. And I think that it's up far beyond there. But as far as top seller, it's been eclipsed by Rumors and, uh, what is it, Hotel California. Both of those have sold more. Okay, But nevertheless, um, and so I stayed in New York, uh, worked around, did other people in New York. uh, Blue Oyster Cult was one. Did a song for a group, Helix, I believe, which is up in Toronto. Mm-hmm. mixed assorted records for people. And, uh, I think it was mid eighties. Uh, Bruce had finished the born in the USA tour and he wanted to work on a live album. And so they asked if I would, uh, you know, be on a retainer, mm-hmm. uh, so that they could have exclusive use of my talent or my work. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. They still allowed me to do other projects, but right. I just had to clear it with them so that they knew that I wasn't available for a week or two or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up staying on that retainer until uh, 2017, Okay. which uh, rounded out to be about 37 years. And uh, for those of you that are wondering, Bruce is indeed the wonderful, nice guy that He comes across as, he's very down to earth, there's no bodyguards around, there's not that he goes to the supermarket. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, when I lived and was in the New Jersey area, which is where he's from and lives, uh, I ran into him Saturday afternoon at the 15 Multiplex Theater, crowded with kids and everything, and he's in there with one or two of his boys and two or three others seeing a movie. Cool. By himself, and he does that. He drives himself around, so uh, <clears throat> that gets that that question out of the way. <laughs> and uh, then in 2017, he hadn't had any work for me, and so we sort of parted company uh, on totally good terms. I mean, I I don't talk with him often, but uh, I will. I'll send him a text or give him a call. Hey, how you doing? All right, we get along. But I've been working at home in Whitefish, Montana. Yeah. I have a studio there and uh, do mostly local bands, um, ranging from anything. Uh, I've done opera in there. I've done a jazz band, uh, bluegrass, rockabilly, country western, heavy metal, um, Said opera. And I uh, do the Glacier Symphony and the Glacier Chorale as well. Uh, Those I don't do in my studio. I have a remote system that I do them on. Mm -hmm. But it keeps me busy and uh, is very interesting because the diversity of talent that I see uh, is far more than when you're working for one guy, regardless of how talented he is at songwriting, playing, singing, or whatever. Yeah. It's sort of the same thing over and over. And now I come in and, geez, anybody walks in the door? Uh, you know, I've done narrations. Actually, I'm in, working on a book. Now, I'm not working on a book. I'm <laughs> assembling it for a guy. Uh-huh. And uh, I just set up my studio to do 5-1 film mixing. Okay. I have a movie that I'll be mixing dialogue, background, Foley, special effects, and music, too, which is normally done by five people, but it's on a budget, so it's me. Yeah. So that pretty much brings us from when I started up to now.
0: Yeah, that's a flash tour of your life. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There's a lot, there's definitely a lot to dig into there. Let's go with the easiest first, and that's just, now you're working in Whitefish, Montana, and you've been in the past working in places like new york los angeles yeah you say there's like a body of talent uh that you're working with in that area i wonder it just brings to mind the question of you know like everybody moves to los angeles or to new york to work in the arts and specifically music mm-hmm. um i wonder what your take on is on that now working with a lot of different independent artists um, Do you think it's necessary for artists to move to kind of music meccas like that at this point? Or do you think that uh, working independently might be a viable option for making a career with music?
1: I think that uh, a good artist can make their music anywhere. Mm -hmm. Uh, The uh, advantage of being in a city like New York, Los Angeles, or Nashville, they're the three capitals here, Mm -hmm. uh, is visibility. Uh, Years ago, it used to be that groups played out in restaurants, you know, bars and cabarets and places like that. Uh, Well, when you're in Los Angeles or New York, there's a dozen record companies that they send people out to scout for new talent. Mm -hmm. And so geez, you want to be there, or you're close to where the record companies are.
2: Yeah.
1: And, uh, and so it's a lot easier to say, hey, you know, you go over to the record company and I'm going to play over at this place, mm-hmm. or can I audition for you? And if they let you come in and play your guitar in front of the A&R man. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that you're closer to the action, but <clears throat> good talent, is good talent. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter whether it's in Los Angeles or Whitefish or Podunk someplace. Yeah, um, If you're writing good songs, you sing good, there's good music for it like that, it will shine. Mm-hmm. And now with everyone being able to record at home, either through a, you know, on your cell phone or with a primitive recording system, You know, every Macintosh computer comes with GarageBand. Yeah. And it's got a bunch of instruments, and all you need is, um, well, hopefully you'll use an external microphone, but I did have a kid that uh, now has his, he's into his second record deal Uh at a uh, fairly major record company, and his first 10 songs he did on his laptop in GarageBand. Okay. And... He asked me what I thought of them, and I said, well, they're pretty good, but some of the vocals are distorted, and there seems to be this sort of humming sound in the background. Yeah. And he goes, oh, well, I recorded these on my laptop (laughs) in my dorm bedroom with the computer sitting on the bed.
2: Uh Uh-huh.
1: And I said, "Oh, well, that's your problem right there. Yeah. It's sitting on the bed, so the computer heats up, and the little fan comes on. Yeah. And if you record four vocals with the same little fan going, shh, all of a sudden you have four times that amount of that hiss. Yeah. And then whenever you yell, this is a microphone the size of a pinhead in that laptop.
0: He's using the internal microphone. Yes.
1: Yeah. And uh, it still sounded great. His production was excellent. And and he goes, well, how can I improve it? I said, well, first of all, get your laptop off the bed, put it on a table. And then go out and buy a little microphone. Uh, was it Blue the Snowball? It's like ninety nine bucks. There's oh, a couple of them. Yeah, I've heard of them. And uh, I said, plug that in, put it on a five foot cord, and do your vocals and your acoustic guitar yeah. across this room somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, now he uh, he has a Pro Tools rig at home, and records all of his stuff, and uh, he's quite accomplished in it. Yeah, but you know, you can do it. Anybody can do it right at home
0: it's really easy yeah, yeah i i just ordered some uh lavalier mics they're little uh-huh. boya mics 20 dollars, and i just have a little zoom recorder and that pretty much makes me portable i'm recording a podcast uh this week with a guy and we're gonna ride a bike together and record while we're biking <laughs> i mean it's yeah it's just so easy to record so many places yeah good. but yeah kind of taking it back to like does the location matter where you are making your music I've often thought about um the idea of does an artist need like life as fuel for what they're writing um and I guess what I mean by that is like I've often thought of like what comes out as music is kind of a like a almost a summary or just like a synthesis of different experiences and Mm -hmm. um and it doesn't have to be something you've done maybe it's something you've read or heard um and that seems to be part of springsteen's identity is the new jersey and then like you said he's the he's the person that comes out in the music um yeah i just wonder if you have any opinions about Maybe, like, what it takes to generate, like, the essence of songs. Like, working with so many artists, is there a common theme? Um, do they all have horrible childhoods? Or
1: Well, I, I understand where you're going. Yeah. And most of the artists, songwriters, that I've worked with, uh, generally, they work at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, every once in a while you're, you're, oh, wow, this came to me in the middle of the night and I got up and I wrote it down and geez, it took me 15 minutes. Yeah. That happens occasionally. And, uh, if, if you're of that mentality to be able to, uh, wake up and get, you know, the first verse of a thing and then be able to, uh, uh, continue, build on that, construct it to get a second verse and a third verse, and they all sound good. Great. Mm -hmm. Um, Other times, I don't think it's quite so easy. And uh, so a lot of songwriters, they'll work at it. Uh, I know Bruce used to work at it. Mm -hmm. Uh, He'd spend a couple hours a day just sitting in his writing room and, you know, going through his book of old lyrics and maybe write down some new ones for different things and trying to put them together yeah. to create a song that he felt was complete and a finished product that would he, he would want to record. Yeah. And uh, whether it be you develop a song and you record it then or you write that song and you go, okay, well, this one's good, and then you get another one until you get two or three songs and then go in and... To, you know, whether it's you're recording in the bedroom or at a studio, right? you can record them. Uh, and so it, it, it's something that I think you should consider always working at it, mm-hmm. in that, uh, you know, make sure that it's to your satisfaction and, you know, play it or whatever with other people, yeah. they go, wow, it sounds good. you know, And uh, be open to suggestions and ideas. Right. Just because you never can tell. I mean, somebody could say, oh, you know, if you change this word to that or this, that, or the other thing, mm-hmm. it could make the difference to, you know, make or break the song. Yeah. I mean, you never can tell.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Being open is a, uh, well, just taking feedback and criticism It's just a very important tool for.
1: You don't have to accept it or incorporate it all into your song just because somebody says, hey, you know, that chorus sucks, you know, write something else. Right. Um, But uh, just to be able to listen to it and say, oh, okay, wow. Yeah. That's this guy's opinion. And somebody else says it's the greatest chorus in the world. Right. You never can tell.
0: Yeah, I know. I've had feedback that. I'm like, okay, that's good advice. And then other feedback is like, oh, well, this like particular thing makes me feel bad or like less, uh, you know, I don't like these lyrics because they make me feel this type of way. And then in my head, I'm like, well, that's kind of what I wanted. I okay. want, like just a little bit of the uncomfortableness. So yeah, just depends on where you're getting it and what that feedback says. And ultimately, maybe where you want to direct it as an artist. Yeah. But um, I wanted to get into, well, earlier on you said that at one point you realized you, you were getting good at recording, um, and I just wanted to take it back a little bit to that, and I was curious, um, the getting good, I don't know, what, what do you think it was that made you good? You mentioned going to school, it wasn't a very intensive school, and you... Basically, left to do a job.
1: Uh, At that point in time, the school was designed to take people who knew zero about recording Mm. to acquaint them with the multi track recording process. Mm -hmm. Now, I had been recording at home on a four track tape for years two, three, four years, something like that. Mm -hmm. So I kind of knew the whole process. Uh, when I was first getting into that recording uh, I was also taking music classes in college Mm -hmm.
3: Uh,
1: not performance but uh, orchestration arranging, music theory things like that And so I I was aware of music and how it worked and I, I could find my way around a piano and I played guitar at the time so had a degree of knowledge, and the classes that I took was to take the, you know, man off the street. Yeah, that goes. Wow, recording must be fun. How do you do that? And acquaint them with, right? You know, this is a microphone. You put it in front of an instrument, and it goes on a track. Yeah, and like that. Um, but I got most of my uh, experience and knowledge was from working in the studio. Yeah, uh, I was fortunate enough to work with some great producers and uh, engineers. And they were kind enough to pass on the knowledge to me Mm -hmm. of like, oh, this is the way we did this. And this is the way we did that when I recorded this song or that song. And uh, some of these people were legendary. Uh, The one, probably the the top of that list would be a producer named Tom Dowd, Mm -hmm. who... Well, prior to becoming a recording engineer, he was a nuclear physicist and worked on the Manhattan Project during the war. Okay. So that just sort of sets the as to this guy's intelligence. Yeah. Um, I think he also moved recording consoles from a knob to a slider. Mm. And uh, the early sliders, you reduced the volume by pushing the slider away from you. Yeah. The track, and then he said, No, this doesn't seem to work. And so he turned it around so that nowadays, when you reduce the volume, you pull it towards you, yeah. which turns it down. And uh, this guy recorded, well, some of, he was one of the starting people with uh, Atlantic Records. Okay. Um, he recorded Ray Charles, yeah. the original work of Ray Charles uh he told me about he would work with uh I think it was a reef Martin, uh who was an attorney and they would bring groups up to the law offices and shove the desks aside and record them in there. Okay. And uh then he also went on he found Leonard Skinnerd and recorded their first few albums. He did probably three or four records for Rod Stewart, if not more. Um, he was the engineer, uh, and I met him through the producer that I worked with regularly, Steve Cropper, who was the guitar player for a group called Booker T and the MGs. Mm-hmm. Now, they had a hit with Green Onions in like 1959 or 60, I mean, these guys go back there. Yeah. And uh, so they had recorded at Stax in Memphis, I believe it was. And uh, Tom was the engineer, and he taught Steve what to do, and then Steve sort of taught me how to do it. And so, you know, I had a few of these people that would offer, you know, suggestions, or this is the way I did it, mm-hmm. like that. And uh, that's the way you pick it up.
0: Uh, so it sounds like you had some really great mentors from like a lineage of recording very good artists and doing it well. Did you seek out these mentors or did you know who they were or did you kind of collide with them? It was
1: uh, just a case of I was working at the studio and it's like, hey, you're assisting on this session. Yeah. And this guy's the producer and this guy's the engineer. Mm -hmm. And I eventually moved into the position of being the engineer. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I got along with the producer really well. And so, no, these were just people that walked in the door. Right. Um, I mean, to a greater or lesser extent. And uh, I was there and just apt and I'm ready to learn and I'm ready to do everything that I can to make this the best recording possible. Yeah. And they always appreciate that. And that's just, for your listeners out there, that's something to keep in mind. Uh, Just because you don't like the job, Who made that quote? Just because you don't like the job, that's no reason to do a bad job of it. Right. And always do the best job that you can, whether it's cleaning the bathroom floors as a gopher in a studio or aligning the tape machine or setting up the microphones. Do it to the best of your ability so that the engineer, the producer, and everybody else will be impressed. Yeah. And keep that attitude when you become the engineer or producer in that... Hey, if there's some crap on the floor, pick it up. Don't don't call some lackey to come and get it. I mean, yeah. perhaps there's a situation where yes, that's the appropriate thing to do. Yeah. But uh, participate on any level necessary. To yeah. make it the best it can be.
0: Yeah, I read a a book about Buddhism recently, well, about a year ago, mm-hmm. and titled Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and one of the concepts that they stress frequently is just Always maintaining a beginner's mind about life, Um, and just the Zen part is just in every moment. So it's it's really recapitulating what you said, but it's totally an Eastern philosophy. And so just,
1: well, it's I've I've always admired and used as sort of one of my mottos, the NBC uh, motto, the more you know, right? Like I have two books on engineering sitting at home Uh that I bought. They're each. 45, 50 bucks a piece. Mm -hmm. One is on uh, recording classical orchestras. Yeah. And another one is by a guy named Roger Nichols, who was a, again, a nuclear scientist, and then he became a recording engineer recording uh, Steely Dan records. Oh, yeah. And then also John Denver. But he was well-known in the industry as being a meticulous, fabulous engineer. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize it until I was doing some work. I knew him. And so I would get information from him direct. But uh, he wrote a book before he died on the recording techniques of Roger Nichols. Yeah. And uh, so I'm always interested. I'll go back and look through. And I uh, did uh, the other day, I went through, sat through, God, it was probably three hours worth of YouTube videos that were by uh, Jeff Emmerich, who recorded Sgt. Peppers and several other Beatles albums. Yeah. And then the other engineer on some of those projects, uh, Richard Luke, I think, or something like that, and of how they did mm-hmm. what they did and, you know, how the sessions went and everything. And so it was quite interesting. I'm always interested to find out how other people work and how, are they, how they do it.
0: Yeah. Why do you think you've kept that attitude? Why didn't you just hang it up after your first, after uh, Born in the USA, you have a platinum record on the wall?
1: Well, uh, why? Why stop learning? Right. You know, <laughs> don't get bored. I don't know everything. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I always have considered myself the same engineer, maybe nowadays with more knowledge and experience behind me, mm-hmm. but the same engineer doing the same recording techniques and talents before i recorded born in the usa yeah then after yeah in other words i didn't go through some epiphany and put the microphones in the right spot to do that record yeah and create that sound yeah i mean there is a sound to it which i did create but um uh, the thing that is, is that I still use generally the same microphones that I used on that record and years before that. Mm-hmm. It just happened to be that that record went to number one and had all these top 10, you know, hit songs on it. And so it's like, oh, wow, geez, you're fabulous.
0: Yeah.
1: As far as I'm concerned, well, I've always been fabulous. Right. <laughs> I've been doing the same job. It's just these people aren't writing good, and song, writing good <laughs> yeah. songs or the record company isn't pushing them right. Right. Uh, So, you know, the, the old adage of right place and right time is, it just happens. Yeah.
0: Well, I also think it speaks to maybe a joy or at least ambition when it comes to doing what you do. Um, And I mean, yeah, you could, if the goal was, you know, success, you could stop right there. Uh, But it's obvious that that's not the goal, especially as you've continued to work. Uh, with independent artists as you've uh, kind of split ways with Springsteen, Um, would you mind sharing what it is you like about your work?
1: Uh, I like to do it. Yeah. I like to record people. Uh, Currently, I'm not a big fan of the one instrument at a time.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Although it depends on who's doing it. Yeah. Now, I recorded, geez, well over a hundred songs with Springsteen. Mm -hmm. And it was just he and I. I generally played the drum machine or programmed the drum machine. Mm -hmm. And he would play acoustic guitar and sing. And then he'd finish that basic track. And then he'd go, all right, I want to put a piano on this. He would move around to anywhere from four or five instruments to 10, 12, 15, not generally a lot. Uh, And among them, keyboards that had string sounds, horn sounds, and other things like that. And in the course of two hours, we'd create a completed song Mm -hmm. that, you know, you couldn't tell. You know, if I played you one of these demos... You go, wow, geez, how long did that take? And I go about an hour and a half. Yeah, you know, he played all the instruments and did all this, and you know, lucky with him. I mean, he's an excellent musician. He sings on pitch in key, (laughs) and and he can play pianos and instruments. And so, in that respect, yeah, it's quite quick. Yeah, Um, but other artists maybe aren't quite so talented. Mm-hmm. is moving from one thing to another yeah and so it, it can become a little laborious yeah uh, My favorite recording times is live musicians all playing together. you know the as far as I'm concerned, the more the merrier mm-hmm. um, My biggest ensemble was a Bob Dylan record where I believe there was 13 people oh wow in a room that was about 25 feet by 25 feet okay. You know, three guitarists, two drummers, bass, piano, organ, two or three background singers, Bob playing guitar and singing, and a saxophone player.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Now, all these people were top musicians.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, they're playing with Bob Dylan, so, uh, but, geez, it was great. Yeah. Loads of fun, boy. Let me tell you, when you're sitting behind it, you don't goof. Right. There's no goofing. You know? yeah. There's no mistakes in that sort of a deal. Right. And uh, you have to do that. And the thing that it is, is that I keep the same attitude, whether it's some three-piece band from Whitefish or a four-piece band from Whitefish that are right. out there playing, I intend on getting it right
3: mm-hmm.
1: the first time. And uh, if they can't get it right the first time, well, they can do it again yeah. and again and again until they do get it right. And... Uh, that's just a matter of experience in the studio. Yeah. Which, for me, I've been in a recording studio for over 40 years.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Anywhere from an hour or two a day to 18 to 20 hours a day. Yeah. And so, you know, the old, uh, what is it, Malcolm Gladwell wrote uh, the Outliers. Yeah. The chapter on 10,000 hours. Right. Of, you know, he used the example of the Beatles and uh, Bill Gates, and then one other person. And I was thinking, wow, these people—they should do that. And then I went, wait a minute—I put in ten thousand hours in my first <laughs> two years of working in the studio.
0: For sure, you know. So, yeah. Well, and it—I guess I'm curious about, like, what you—you you like the process? You like the. Is it, is it the music? Do you like to listen to the music? Is it the, the act of doing the recording?
1: It's the creative process mm-hmm. and the moment of creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, years ago, when I first started out in the studio, most of the records were done with a band that was not the band signed to the record label. Yeah. It was a band of studio musicians. Mm-hmm. These guys are experts, bass, drums, guitars, keyboards. They're experts. All they do is record songs for different people. Right. Sometimes two and three, four different artists, maybe four different songs or five or six different songs in different studios in the course of a day.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So they get used to listening to a song going, oh, yeah, we can do this and that. Yeah. They're experts at it. And that sort of moment of creation, when they're listening to it, and they go, okay, and then they go out in the studio, and they go, well, let's do a take. Yeah. And they play the song through, and it sounds pretty good. And then they make some adjustments, and then second, third, fourth, or fifth take. All of a sudden, they've made some adjustments, and all of a sudden, it's like, wow, Mm -hmm. that was it. That was really cool. Okay. And they go, okay, well, that's our take. What's the next song? Yeah. And then they move on. You know, that's really exciting. Uh, You know, there are other things, uh, you know, when you're doing a guitar overdub Mm -hmm. and the guy plays it a couple of times and he goes, oh, wow, that's great. You know, uh, another one, exciting moments in the studio that, you know, make it worthwhile. Um, Recording big sections. Yeah. You know, a horn section. You got a five-piece horn group. And they're out there. They don't play one at a time.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, you got the baritone, the tenor, and the soprano saxophone, a trombone, and a couple of trumpets. Yeah. And these guys are all together, and generally the ones that are the best ones are what they, they do what we call head charts. In other words, they don't write anything down. They just remember the part.
3: Mm-hmm. You
1: sing it to them like, hey, I want this old, you know, soul t- feeling like... And they go, okay, great. You take the... You know. Uh-huh. And they just talk amongst themselves and they make the part and then bingo. Yeah. They say, well, play it through and we'll throw something down. So they do it and you're like, wow, that was great. Yeah. You know, or you maybe give them an adjustment. Um, string sections are big. Now, string sections are written out. All those players, they want music in front of them. Right. But you'll have a composer create the string parts for a song that you've been listening to that's, you know, acoustic guitar, piano, bass and drums or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the guys put the vocal on it and then you put the strings on there and boy, there's sometimes it's it's quite emotional. Yeah. Because a, a great string part can just enhance a song and you wow, mm-hmm. this is cool. And if you've got whether it's a small group 15 piece or a 30 piece thing out there or uh let's see film scores tend to be bigger I've only done one of those but uh you know there's a lot of musicians out there yeah and you get a you know an orchestra which is percussion stuff horns woodwinds uh strings and They're they're playing a score, yeah, and it it it's again it's something where you you better not be right out of school Mm -hmm. (laughs) because (laughs) there's no making a mistake and going oh hey can you guys do that one more time right yeah
0: yeah I mean it's just a flow when something like that is going on Mm -hmm. and yeah it brings me to the question of when you are sitting in that studio and you're like okay I've got. We've got 13 musicians that are about to play. What's in your mind, and what is it that you're trying to capture? Like, what is the objective? I mean, theoretically, you could just throw a mic out there, but what are you doing to really capture that
1: moment? Well, I put the mics out there Uh in the right place Mm -hmm. so that they hopefully translate the sound of the instrument so that it comes across sounding like that instrument in right. the control room. And then the rest of it is uh, just sit back, yeah. listen to it. In the course of multiple takes for a given song, that's when the engineer has the opportunity to change something. Okay. You know, you might do a the first take of a song, and you listen to it, and you go, Oh, gee, that snare drum sounds a little tubby. Mm-hmm. Well, then the right thing to do is go out there and have the drummer hit the snare drum a few times. Mm -hmm. If it sounds tubby out there, well, that's the way it is. You can change the position of the microphone to make it less tubby. And so then that would be the thing, oh, well, I don't like that. It's just boom, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's not doing anything for me. So you change the position of the microphone to bring out maybe more of the brightness and less of the tubbiness. Yeah. Or you change microphones that's on that drum and go, oh, well, this one will do a better job of, you know, doing that. And uh, the key is making sure that the recording of every instrument whether it be one, two, five, 10, 15, or whatever,
2: yeah,
1: um, is right. So that when they do the performance, and the performance is right, you're able to go, okay, great, everything's good. Yeah, the performance is ultimately the thing you want to record. Right. However, I will say, I seldom ever have been labored over the sound of any instrument you know when recorded with the ensemble
2: mm-hmm.
1: because that's the sound of this group yeah here and now playing this song yeah and just so many throughout the course of recorded history especially in the days of analog
3: mm-hmm.
1: where when you recorded if you replace that guitar part, bass, keyboard, or whatever, yeah. the early one's gone. It's not there. And so you better have a good reason to replace it. Mm-hmm. You know, either he performed the part poorly
3: mm-hmm.
1: or something like that. Um, but generally the sound of stuff is just, that's the way it is. Yeah. And you can never tell until you know, months or years later when it's come out and it's a big hit and, you know, somebody comes up to you at the, at a convention and says, wow, you recorded that song, didn't you? And I, yeah, yeah. How'd you get that snare drum to sound like a coffee can?
2: <laughs>
1: well, actually it was a coffee can. Yeah. The guy hit his snare drum and put a stick through the head and it was midnight and we couldn't get another head. And so we decided to just use this coffee can or the side of the snare drum
0: yeah. and going
1: clank, clank, clank on it. And it uh, seemed to work at the time. And yeah. since it sold 2 million copies, I guess it sounded okay.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> but no, we didn't go through 10 snare drums until we found this exact one. Right. I mean, nowadays you can with virtual instruments and stuff like that.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, you try and find something that. Sounds appropriate. Tell the drummer, tune it up, turn it down. Can you do this? Put a capo on that guitar. Something to get a little bit different of a sound if things aren't working out together.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like there's almost two parts. One, you're almost co-parenting the song. Like You have to have a shared vision with the person playing the song because Mm -hmm. you don't want it to come out sounding something other than the way the song is intended to come out. So you have to intuit like, what is this song conveying? What is it supposed to sound like? And on the other hand, it is just a time and place that you're not going to be able to recreate in the future. So there's an element of, well, whatever it is, will be.
1: Yeah. Right. And you want to go with the artist's concept mm-hmm. if they have a concept and idea. Yeah. But oftentimes, if the artist is open and receptive to, what's going on in the now mm-hmm. and hasn't been at home thinking, oh boy, it's going to sound like this and he has a vision of various things. Well, yeah, that makes it sometimes hard to overcome.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but the engineer, and the producer may guide him or maybe not, uh, the engineer has a lot to do with the sound. Yeah, uh, He can shape it in a direction. You know, you might hear something where the guitar player is doing, you know, doing some sort of a hillbilly beat. Mm -hmm. And so what you do is you put what's called a slap, it's a tape delay, Mm -hmm. on the vocal. so You know, that sort of Elvis tape slap thing. And that adds to the hillbilly feel because this is a, a standard trick. The, you know, to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you do that. And then maybe the drummer is uh, whacking a thing and you'll put a little slap on him. So rather than it going bang, bang, it's... Yeah. Uh, there's a John Lennon song that you hear the drum and it's... It's banging. They put that on it. I don't know why they did that. But, uh, you know, for... Well, like the song Born in the USA. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we went in, I wanted to make sure that I could leave the studio with my sound. Mm-hmm. And so I asked the assistant engineer. I said, "What sort of reverbs do you have here?" Yeah. And they had uh, several plates. It's a it's it's a plate. It's a four by eight sheet of metal that, where the driver on one side and the sound goes into it goes bang and then there's microphones on the other side and they okay. pick up the sound of this this piece of aluminum or tin being hit. Huh. And um, and they said, "Well, we got four of these uh, EMT 140s or 240s, whichever they were." And uh, and I said, "Well, can I like reserve one?" And they go, "Well, these are used by all of the studios. Mm-hmm. This is a studio where there's at least three rooms." And so you you can reserve it. But somebody may use it in the afternoon, and have changed it completely from yeah. when you get it. And I said, "Well, I'd like one that I can keep to my own." So they had one of these, that was one that nobody liked to use because it was broken, and the uh, decay time on it was seven or eight seconds. It was like you'd you'd put a snare drum in it and go, uh-huh. last forever. Uh-huh. And I went, "Great, I'll take that one." And so. I ended up using that on the snare drum and I put the snare drum exclusively into that mm-hmm. and then gated the return so that when the snare drum hit the plate, mm-hmm. it made this. <laughs> but rather than last forever, okay, this gate turned it off. Yeah. And then to make sure that I could leave the studio with that, I printed it on a track of tape. Okay. And... That's what became this, Born in the USA. That opening snare drum where you hear boom, thish, boom, whish, yeah. that big explosive sort of snare drum sound. Uh, now Bob Clearmountain enhanced it. He heard the thing and oh, okay, I can I can make this better. And he used some other uh, electronic uh, reverb devices to make it better. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's actually, I think he did it a couple of weeks ago, doing a mix with the masters. How I mixed Born in the USA.
2: Okay.
1: (laughs) But um, so in an instant like that, when we did that first playback Mm -hmm. of Born in the USA, everybody was just mouths open just going, my God. And and I said to one of the producers, I said, well, geez, I don't know if this is what Bruce had in mind to sound like, Mm -hmm. but it sounds really good. And everybody said, yeah, it does. It sounds really good.
2: Yeah.
1: And so I had... See, I had sort of gotten a concept, an idea, and I had took it in this direction. Right. Because Bruce, the record before that, um, the river, the drums sounded like they were in a basketball arena, which is what he wanted. Okay. The bef- Before that, Darkness on the Edge of Town, there was no reverb on the drums. They were dry as a bone. Mm-hmm. And then Born in the USA had this super explosive effect on the snare drum and I was using other delays and reverbs and things like that on the keyboards and the guitars and things. Yeah. And so it, it varied, but I had done the sound on the river Mm -hmm. and then I'm born in the USA, created a different sound. And then what was it? Uh, two albums after that, uh, or an album after that tunnel of love. Yeah. Was a completely different sound. You know, and that's the way I approach it when a band's out there and they're playing like that. I'm like, okay. And I start turning on microphones, and all the microphones are on. And then I listen to it and I go, oh, gee, I think this would sound good if this was in a really deep echo chamber. Mm -hmm. And I'll put it in there. I don't always feed it into the headphones because the musicians, they want to hear what they're doing. Right. They don't want to hear the finished record, you yeah.
2: know, because
1: they don't know what it's going to sound like. But, uh, you know, and so I will shape and contour and get some concepts mm-hmm. on the song as it's being performed by the musicians. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, that's another exciting part about it is being able to be creative and go, "Oh, I'm going to try this and do that and whatever." Right. And then. The artist, you know, in most of my cases, was Springsteen. He'd come into the c- control room and, and i go, what do you think? And he goes, sounds good. And I, you know, I mean, there was times when he'd do background vocals and I'd put them through a flanger or something like that. Yeah. If you know what a flanger is. Mm-hmm. And um, i go, oh, yeah, that sounds cool, you know. And sometimes i go, no, I don't like that. Yeah. Seldom, though. I have good taste
0: <laughs> so yeah it is in a way a collaborative process especially yes. when you're working with somebody like Bruce that you've been working on for years and years oh yeah um, and I when you are collaborating you're working on a song right. what is it that you are trying to you said I've good taste are you are you simply following your taste yeah. um, is there something
1: no, I'm following yeah. my instincts. Yeah, yeah, I. Uh, and that's the case, I think, with all good engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like mixing.
2: Yeah,
1: mixing this is the final step in recording a thing, Un- unless you're recording it and you're doing it direct to stereo or direct to a disc or something like that, which mm-hmm. doesn't happen much anymore. But uh, in the in the final. Stage of making a record is the mix. Yeah. And yeah, regardless of the echo, reverbs, or effects that you put on anything, Mm -hmm. the physical sounds of the instruments and the balance between them is a talent. Yeah. Um, Adding the effects of reverbs and delays and special effects of flanging or phasing or whatever it may be, um, there's a talent to that as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's the classes out there that I'm sure hundreds of thousands of people pay for Mix with the Masters. Right. And these guys, Clear Mountain and uh, several big name mixers, they hold these classes. Mm Mm-hmm. And they say, "Oh, well geez, you do this and do that, whatever like that." The thing that they can't get across is when you use it and how much right You know, uh, it's like when you put that delay on the guitar or the effect on the guitar, and it comes out and it sounds great, mm-hmm. the record goes on to sell millions because of this great guitar sound, yeah. You know, you give it to another engineer and he goes, oh, what'd you do? Oh, I put this effect on the guitar. Oh, okay. So he'll stick it on a song that he's mixing. Mm -hmm. Except for that particular song, that effect is entirely inappropriate. Right. Well, that's the difference between an engineer that has good taste and experience and someone who doesn't. Mm -hmm. The experienced engineer will be able to take the stuff and go, oh, well, this is what they gave me. And they won't necessarily remake it, you know. Adding a lot of EQ and equalizing a lot of instruments across the board, generally not a lot of that takes place, I believe, with the experienced mixers. Mm -hmm. Uh, The reasons being, uh, A, the artist probably wanted it to sound like that Mm -hmm. they're either recording it themselves or they were in collaboration with the engineer that recorded it And they go oh that sounds good Mm -hmm. and so if it's a dull sounding guitar or a dull sounding piano
2: yeah
1: well that might be the way that they want it right and so for you to go in there and go wow the piano sounds really dull when you pull up all the faders and you start listening to this and hopefully they will have provided you with what's referred to as a rough mix. It's a their initial mix. So they go, well, this is what we're thinking it should sound like. We just want it to sound better than that.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Then you listen to it you might go, oh, I see. Piano sounds a little dull, but now I see where it fits mm-hmm. in the course of the mix. They want those guitars to be sharp and clear and bright, and the piano is sort of dull and, you know, mellow sounding. Okay. And so... You know, a mixing engineer will hopefully pick up on all this. Right. And he's not going to make everything sound sensational. Mm-hmm. He'll take the lead of, well, this is what it sounds like. And generally you'll want to EQ things so that they fit together. If it's a if it's a crowded mix, uh, they might mute things. You know, in the chorus, if there's three guitars doing the same thing, an engineer might mute one. Yeah. Or uh, he might... EQ one so that it's more trebly and another one so it's more bass defined. Yeah. uh, So that you can hear the difference between them. Right. Uh, But, you know, the mix guy, he... It's a person that can mix a combination of instruments together so that to him it sounds pleasing and to most everyone else. Right. You know, 90% of the public out there will go this sounds good. Mm-hmm. I like this.
0: Yeah, if they share the same taste. And there's yeah. there's so much that there's so much depth to what a certain sound can convey that you almost have to have that intuition to be someone that works with sound because it's a whole different realm like you can learn music theory and you're learning a different language. And it's basically how to describe a different sound. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this today. I listened to a song that came on. And it's clearly, I mean, it could be not digital, but it's, it's a newer song. And they have a, a, a synth in there, but the way that it's playing out has like a warble, like it's playing on a warped tape or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, just like the nostalgia that that conveys because it's taking the sound back. And then I've also listened to another album um, by Shaky Graves that came out recently. And a, a few of the songs are, it sounds like he recorded them with a really cheap cassette recorder in his bedroom. yeah. And I, it just does such a great job to convey the essence of what it is. And I think it's like, oh, I wrote these songs like with my really old guitar in my bedroom, and it makes it really intimate. Um, So, yeah, there's just so many different elements to what a sound conveys that, I mean, you could spend so much time just trying to translate that or you can have that instinct to really go in. and.
1: Well, that's a case of where if a mixer is given a song to mix, Mm -hmm. it's very handy if the artist can present him with what they call a rough mix, Mm -hmm. which is basically these are all the instruments recorded. This is the song. We like how this sounds, mm-hmm. so that the mixer then has an idea yeah. that, oh, gee, they have this sound. And you may have to qualify it. You may listen to it and go, gee, it sounds sort of funky, like it was recorded on a cassette deck or something. And they go, well, yeah, we like that sound. Right. And you go, oh, okay. And, you know, and then the standard phrase these days is, there's an app for that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I can make it sound like it was recorded on a cassette deck. There's an app, that, you know, cassette. Right. Uh, but th- those are the things that, you know, a mixer, it's just, it happens that his taste mm-hmm. is liked by the general public. Right. And so, it, it also helps if, uh, you know, if the song's good. Yeah. I mean, there, there are guys now that, there's a bunch of mixers that, I'm like, who is this? What have they done? Mm -hmm. And then I see their resume. Oh, he's done Beyonce and he's done this one and that one and whatever. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, that's part of what makes somebody's mixing capabilities acceptable. Right. Is who have they worked with that sold a bunch of records, you know?
0: Yeah. Because there is that influence on what's happening, what's being put out. Mm Um this kind of brings me to the question of uh, taste and then your judgment. And earlier on you talked about you created and put out music that you were taking to studios and um, trying to work as an artist yourself. And I, yeah, it just makes me wonder what was, what was it like making the decision to move from, okay, well, I'm not going to be an artist, but I'm still going to work in music. Uh, what, what, what prompted you to not continue to pursue, pursue um, being a songwriter and to pursue recording?
1: I think it was a combination of things. I had been working as sort of the shadow director in the background with the two bands that I got in the recording studio earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, I was simply the manager. Right. Uh, with the one band, the producer that took them on wanted me to be in the band because I looked cooler than they did.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: But, um, uh, you know, doing little manipulative things like that. And then when I would work at home, uh, I was working recording yeah. my songs and then recording other people, you know, friends of mine that they played and sang. We, Ooh, great, let's do this and add this to it and that to it. Yeah. And so there was a certain amount of initial enjoyment in doing that, Mm -hmm. in the recording of it. And I thought, well, gee, as a recording engineer, I can record this and I'll record my songs. And so, you know, I think I had three songs, maybe four. And I recorded them Mm -hmm. and uh, took them to a place and had them mixed down by somebody else. And then when I... Went to the re, the record companies, and I went in London because they're a little bit more open there than they are in Los Angeles or New York. Mm-hmm. And uh, over there, the A&R people, I would come right into their office. I mean, with an appointment. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'd come into the office, and this was in a day when I was carrying around a little five-inch reel of tape. Yeah. I say, here's my three songs, and they'd put them on a tape machine, and they'd thread it through, and they'd play it, and they'd listen to all three songs. Cool. And at the end of the three songs, they go, "Well, it's pretty good. Uh, it's not really what we're looking for. It's a little too personal, or a little too this, or a little too that, or something. Mm-hmm. Not. It's it's not it's not selling me on it. Okay. Go, oh, okay. So I did that with probably three or four, if not maybe a half a dozen companies. Mm -hmm. I I lived in London for, I guess, about six weeks or so, and I had an apartment and a job. And just on the days off, I would call up the record companies or go by and, hey, will somebody listen to my tape? And they go, yeah, come by tomorrow or whenever. They're quite receptive and open. And uh, so after you get rejected for three or four or half a dozen times or whatever, Mm -hmm. I was like, hmm, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to be an artist. And so I just said, well, I guess my reason for being here in London has expired. Yeah. Which my reason for being there was to have access to record companies. It wasn't to play out at gigs or do anything like that. It was mm-hmm. just to have access to record companies. And uh, and so... When I got my half a dozen rejections or something, I went, all right, I'm out of here. I'm going to go home. Yeah. And so I packed up and flew home and uh, ended up um, in Buffalo, New York, the first year I was home. And again, managing bands and recording a couple of artists. Mm-hmm. And after I recorded one guy and I took him down to New York City around a few record companies that all, nah, you know, I was like, geez, why am I beating my head against the wall trying to promote somebody else? Yeah. And so I said, I'm going to get in there and be a producer. Yeah. And I thought what does a good producer need to know? Well, he needs to know music and have good taste for arranging and how to put stuff together. Felt I had all those talents. And then the other thing was engineering. Because all my engineering had been home Mm -hmm. on my little four-track machine. Although I'd seen big studios. I went, well, then what I should do is I should learn engineering. And get a job being an engineer so that I can master that craft. Mm-hmm. And then I can go into producing. Okay, Which I did. Um, you know, I became a good engineer and I started producing things. And then uh, I guess I became lazy. I know another guy that's a very famous mixer, and he did the same thing. As a producer, you have a possibility of making a tremendous amount of money mm-hmm. if the artist sells, because you get generally anywhere from 5 to 10% of the right. retail sales, and they give you an advance before you start the record, and then they give you the remainder of your, your funds or your advance yeah. when you deliver the record. But a producer is involved in producing the artist, which it's an involved process. Mm-hmm. You have to get together with the artist, and you listen to their songs, whether they're playing them on piano or whether. Mm-hmm. So you listen to their demos, and you record them on a cassette deck or whatever. Yeah. Then you go home and you listen to all the songs. And you might work with the audience, the artist for a week, two weeks, two months, or two years. Mm-hmm. There used to be an aspect that they called artist development, that was part of signing a band. Okay, and that was money that was specifically to take a potentially good artist, singer, songwriter, performer, mm-hmm. and help them develop into a better. Singer, writer, performer. Right. And so, anyway, as a producer, you're doing this. You're kind of bringing the guy along, helping him hone his songs down and do that. And then, if the artist says, Oh, well, I want to have a band, you know, Mm -hmm. so then, okay, well, get a band. And the artist and their manager will get a band. But then the producer steps in and says, Okay. Then he has to help work out the arrangements with the band. Yeah. If you want to go that route, if you want to go the fast route, you just go. Okay, these songs are good. Let's go into the studio and hire a bunch of studio musicians, and they will work out all the good parts. Yeah. And so you go in, and um, you know, studio musicians, the band, record the the tracks. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Well, you have to go home that night and say, well, we did six takes of this song. Yeah. Which take is the best? And this song. Same thing. A lot of homework yeah. for the producer. And, you know, I mean, you can do that and then you go into the studio and think, oh, this song, it needs, uh you know, this one needs this instrument and that instrument. And you can talk to the artist about it. Should we put these on? Yeah, okay, right, you know.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You've got the budget to do it. And it, it's just, there's a lot of homework in being the producer. Yeah. And about the time when I was, pulled in or offered and given producing jobs uh, it wasn't big acts it was small brand new acts that mm-hmm. may go nowhere or probably will go nowhere right and and so I was I sort of went you know I always balance the amount of effort with the amount of reward <laughs> and I go okay I can spend 40 to 60 hours a week producing this group. Mm -hmm. for six weeks, probably closer to three months, Mm -hmm. because there's pre-production and there's the studio time and after the time, you know, like that. Or, and in which case, I'm going to walk away with X thousands of dollars.
2: Yeah.
1: Presuming that the record doesn't sell, which 90% of the time that's the case. Or I can be an engineer. Mm Mm-hmm. The engineer, I show up, you know, half an hour before the session, make sure all the mics are set up properly, record the whole session at the end of the day, I go home. Yeah. And I don't think about it. Right. You know, and so I went, "Uh, I think the production, I'm just going to not go down that road. Mm -hmm. And so I'd always just been an engineer. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I can still, and I do produce some. Mm -hmm. I consider it. Well, it's producing, but I I consider it more of guiding and advising an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that you know, I don't want them to miss out on anything. Right. You know, if a song needs this instrument, and I go, hey, did you consider this? Yeah. Then I go, oh geez, I didn't think of that. Yeah. You know, oh, and then they might try it, and they go, wow, sounds great. Mm-hmm. or they want to have a kazoo solo and you go well I don't know whether a kazoo solo is going to be right let's try it yeah and it mis- might sound great but maybe we better go with a saxophone instead of the kazoo and it might yeah. sound a little bit more sellable yeah. if we want to sell records right if we want to make a you know a critically acclaimed record but sells nothing then maybe the kazoo is the way to go yeah. Because that's that's one of the things you have to keep in mind.
0: That's interesting. I I didn't know that was actually... Uh, well, there's the classic jazz and rock joke. What's the difference between a jazz guitarist and a rock guitarist? A jazz guitarist plays... No, a rock guitarist plays three chords in front of 3,000 people. And the opposite is true for a jazz guitarist. But I didn't...
1: <laughs> 3,000 chords in front of three people Right
0: (laughs) But I hadn't actually um, That's just a really interesting Perspective that it is actually That you can try to push Something new At the risk of Not having an audience I I suppose there's probably a very Thin line there to walk Well
1: I I came close to being in a position for that. There's an artist out there, Tom Waits. Mm-hmm. And I had loved Tom Waits for years. His yeah. original two, three, four albums. I was oh man, this is... I loved his lyrics, the whole cinematic picture that he painted mm-hmm. with his songs. And my gosh, back in the 80s, he didn't call me up and wanted me to engineer a record for him. yeah. And we met in, like, Tom Waits' world. It was down in lower Manhattan in New York. It was in this bar on a back street and everything. And yeah, I walked in, and it's a seedy place, and... I'm like, wow. And the bartender goes, well, and I go, I'm here to meet. And he goes, he's in the back. <laughs> you know, and I look back there and there it is. Smoke and low lights and everything. There's oh, yeah. Tom sitting at the table. I go back and talk to him and he's, yeah, he does, Tom. Yeah. You know, that's Tom Waits. That's just the way he is. Yeah. And we talked and he said, yeah, I want to do something. And I I, I fired my manager. I don't have a producer and my, you know, but I, I, I want to make something. And, uh, Because I'd like to find a place that we can use and do that, and I spent probably a week or two going around to studios and places and things like that. And he's like, "Oh, this is pretty good, you know." And then, over the course of this time, we're talking, and he starts going, "Well, I, I, I can't afford to pay you that," and I said. Okay, well, I'd really like to work with Tom, so I'll lower my rate. Uh And I think, I don't know what I was getting in those days. It was like 100 bucks an hour or something. Mm -hmm. But I really wanted to work with Tom. And so it went down and down and down. And finally, I think the last time I uh, talked with him, I I said, I think either he or something, would do it for like $35 an hour.
2: Okay.
1: And that was low, especially for me and it's New York city and whatever. Right. And I said, geez, Tom, I, I, I really feel that, you know, I'm helping you out of doing a lot of this stuff. You got a problem with paying me. Why don't you just give me, you know, co-production or something on the record? Cause as it is, I'm helping you and we're talking about this and doing this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, oh no 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 no! You know he didn't he didn't want to give up anything. I think he'd had a bad either manager or producer that had taken him for a ride or whatever. Okay. And uh, I said, "Well, just pay me on the backside. You know, when you sell it, give me a, a few points on it, uh-huh. which will make up for the. You know, I, I went from seventy-five to fifty, and now I'm at thirty-five bucks an hour. I I won't do it for less than that. Yeah. And he goes, "Oh, well, I'll make some other arrangements." He he did it. I think that album was Rain Dogs or something like that. Okay. And uh, but he was somebody who had. Tom had peculiar ideas about instrumentation and mm-hmm. things like that, and we had talked a lot about the stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, it would have been quite interesting, but it just came to a point of like, look, he wants me to work for free, basically, right? You know, or what to me would be lower than what I would feel comfortable with at the time. Yeah. So I passed on it. He went on and made it with somebody else. I don't know. I'd have to look back to compare the the year that he and I talked and then what was the subsequent album later that year that he came right. out with. I think it was Rain Dogs.
0: Yeah. Well, so it uh, sounds like you've been, throughout the course of your career, you've been very rational with like what jobs you want to take, why you want to do it. Um you know, it's not just the money, it's the enjoyment. So you're not doing the producing just to do the producing sounds like the audio engineering sounds like a better gig because of all the benefits that it takes, uh, that it has with it. I just think that's a thinking about that in retrospect is valuable to someone in my position with most of, you know, what I'm going to do for a career ahead of me. Um, and just other younger people, I think it's very valuable to see the different perspectives that folks have when they pursue a career. And, yeah, I appreciate just kind of you're elucidating what you've done as you've chosen these different routes for your life.
1: Yeah, well, you know, on that note, or just to sort of wrap that up or mm-hmm. whatever, um, you know, when Springsteen offered to put me on a retainer, Yeah. They said, well, look, we'll pay you this amount of money every month. Mm -hmm. And you can do other work, but we want you to be able to be available for us to work. Yeah. And I sort of weighed it, you know, in one hand, okay, this means I've got a steady gig. Mm -hmm. I don't have to look for work. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the amount of money that I was being paid at the time if I was working regularly over the course of a year for generally in those days reasonable artists finished a record in six weeks to two months that's just how long it took you'd work six eight hours a day go home five days a week and do a record and but the only thing was is that when you're working on some one record you've either got to have a manager or some means of getting the next record mm. all lined up so that it starts within a few days of when you finish this record. Really? So okay. it's a little bit of a challenge. You know, it's, uh, you got to step from one moving car to another yep. and keep moving forward. Uh, and so I thought, well, have to always look for work. And when you're looking for work, then you're confronted with what if it's an artist that i don't like Mm -hmm. but they want to pay me Uh, i've I've found at some point in the course of my career oftentimes your rate reflects how much you want to work with this person yeah like tom waits i lowered it considerably right if it had been somebody that i didn't like them and they said oh i want to work with you and I was like, "Oh, well, let' us see, I normally get a hundred bucks an hour. let's see, uh, it's gonna be a hundred and fifty an hour, yeah, and you just gotta hope that they don't have the budget to be able to pay it, right some do, and so then it's somebody you don't want to work with, maybe it's a guy who's got a terrible personality,
2: yeah, that's what
1: there are artists that are just they chew off assistants heads and yeah." chew them up and spit it down their neck you know uh, yeah. just terrible people and so these are the things that i was weighing like oh always looking for work one job to another possibly working with people that i don't like or don't want to work with maybe it's music that i don't like or don't want to work with mm-hmm. Thing like that yeah or take this kid this gig with springsteen he doesn't work all the time he's a nice guy he's a great songwriter yeah and do that but i won't necessarily make the amount of money that I would make as a freelance. Right. I just decided, eh, I'm not a workaholic. I'll take the gig. Yeah. You know, and uh, and it turned out to, it lasted a long time. hmm And I was, you know, I was perfectly happy the entire time.
0: Yeah, I mean, just, I think it's good we've considered your life journey. And I think particularly it's valuable to consider... Um, you know, strategies different people use to pursue a career. I mean, careers are necessary, but it's also nice to have that nested in something that you care about deeply. Um, And I guess to close this out, do you have any advice to give for people who are looking at, you know, working on their career for the rest of their lives or maybe changing careers or just General advice, life advice that you might have um, for people that are poised to make decisions about what they're going to do for the rest of their
1: life? Well, in the generality, like what you do, mm-hmm. whatever it is. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, teaching outward bound courses where you go into the woods for two weeks on end with a bunch of. Neophyte outdoors people, and yeah. you teach them how to live in the woods or whether you record music or you play music right
2: you
1: know uh, and how much involved you want to be as a as a performer uh, you know the music is a peculiar thing because. Music is always necessary and needed. Um, I, one time I decided I wanted to be a drummer, so I took drum lessons. And this guy that ran the drum store, that uh, he didn't teach me, but one of his students did, mm-hmm. the guy said, you know, being a musician got me through the Depression because it didn't matter how little money anybody had or how miserable they felt or the times were mm-hmm. everybody always likes to hear music yeah they can always come up with that quarter to pay the admission to get into a dance and you have to understand this is the, the 30s was the depression yeah and they can always pay that quarter they'll always put the quarter in the jukebox down at the bar mm-hmm. and they will always pay for music and uh, so so that's a particular career, and whether you're recording music and trying to sell it over the internet, or Spotify, or whatever the avenues are, or whether you're playing every day out, out and about, you know, I uh, one time encouraged my son, who was taking piano lessons, and I said, "You want to make some money? Take that little forty-nine key keyboard
2: yeah.
1: over to the restaurant." that's like 200 yards from our house uh-huh. and you know the manager of the place and we've checked with him he'll let you set it up and give you a little beer pitcher you set it on top of your little keyboard and you rattle out the songs that you know mm-hmm. I said I'll bet you anything you'll make 20 bucks an hour Yeah, and he, he never did it but that's something you can do you, you don't have to go to a bar or restaurant where they are paying you Mm -hmm. You can just go in and hey, can I set up in the corner and I'll just my little amplifier and I'll just give a little background music.
2: Yeah.
1: And you can make money. Uh, And so I think do what you like and do it to the best of your ability Mm -hmm. are the two sort of watchwords or motto. Yeah. And uh, if you can't do that, Keep it in mind.
2: Yeah.
1: You know, when I... I played music in the evenings, and I worked delivering appliances for a few years. Mm -hmm. That's actually the job that I left when I decided to pursue a career as a musician and made my recordings and went to London. Right. And uh, the appliance business, it paid my rent, Mm -hmm. but I didn't like doing it. In the evening, I would get together with a friend, and we'd go out to coffee houses, and we'd sit up, and we didn't get paid. I mean, we'd put a tip jar out, but maybe a buck or two, something like that. Right. And uh, but I liked doing it, and it turned out that I was able to, through that performance and working with my tape machine at home,
3: mm-hmm.
1: turn it into a career, and my career turned out to be fairly lucky, to a certain extent. I was good at it, but uh, it worked out. And it doesn't matter what you're doing. You know, I uh, would encourage anyone to try different occupations in order to find what you like to do. Yeah. Um, You know, it it, it just doesn't matter. I, I have a gal that was helping me on my physical therapist. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, how did you arrive at being a physical therapist? And she goes, well, it sort of happened. She went to college and got a degree and working was working as a chemical research scientist. Uh-huh. And uh, she said, I didn't like it. You know, I had my degree and I was here working for a company and all it was was doing research about this, that, and the other thing and then publishing papers and trying to do that stuff. And and I, she said, but I had... I don't know, she hurt herself or something and had physical therapy. She said, this is kind of neat. She went back to school, got her certificate as a physical therapist, now loves it. She just She's happy in doing her job.
2: Oh, that's good.
1: You know, and so that's something that, you know, if you're wondering what you are going to do or become, try different jobs. You know, uh, just work at this, work at that. Find something you never can tell. You might stumble onto something and go, Wow. I really like driving trucks. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever it is. Who knows? Yeah. Um, as long as you like doing it, you know, go for it.
0: Awesome. Thank mm-hmm. you, Toby. All right. You're welcome. This has been fun.
1: Yeah. Now you know which button is the save button on that thing? Yeah.